What is the PRO Act? Where did it come from? And what does it mean for every worker in America, even the workers who freelance for spending money on the weekends in the gig economy? In this episode, Austin Bannon, the Senior Employment Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity and the Vice President of the Economic Opportunity Initiative, Akash Chugli, break it down for us in just 30 minutes. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Americans for Prosperity's Insight to Action. Here we go. So if you don't, if you don't mind, just help me understand, um, Akash, if you can, what went into the, the, the PRO Act, how it was how it came about even, and then we'll get into what it does and why we uh, are concerned about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth putting into context just how significant this bill is before we dive into uh, the different components that make it up. Labor policy doesn't get a lot of attention these days, largely as a function, I think, of just a declining union rate. Now, we're um, you know well under 10% of the private sector workforce belongs to a labor union, um, but they remain an incredibly potent force in our economy and our politics. Um, and that's one of the driving forces behind this bill. And so one of the primary goals of this bill is really, I would say, uh, to flip the table upside down on nearly 80 years of established labor law. Labor law for a long time has done a decent job of trying to balance the interests of workers, the unions that represent them, the employers. Uh, that they work for, and then, you know, the consumers and the public as well. The PRO Act completely throws out that way of thinking and it massively tilts the playing field in favor of unions to make it easier to organize workers, make it easier to punish employers, and just sort of significantly shift the, the dynamic that exists in our private sector economy today. As far as the scope of this bill, and I know Austin can dive into some of the details here in a second, the way to think about this, if we think about how much impact Obamacare had on the healthcare industry and, um, you know, the sort of healthcare sector in the United States, or the impact that Dodd-Frank had on the banking and financial services industry as far as the amount of regulation and government intervention and control uh, that those two bills brought into their particular sectors, the PRO Act does even more than that for labor law. That's why this is such a significant threat uh, at any time, but particularly now as we're trying uh, for the economy to recover from the pandemic, tens of thousands of businesses are closed, you know, millions of folks are out of work. Uh, so there really could not be a worse time than this to do something this drastic to America's labor law. Austin, he, he made the, the comment that this overturns 80 years of, of labor laws and, and he's called it drastic. Help me understand um, exactly what we're talking about here, because this sounds this sounds important. I'm telling you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and not only does it uh, stand to overturn labor laws from that long ago, but I think a lot of the people that are pushing these reforms have a mentality that America is still operating at an economy that uh, that we saw 80 years ago, trying to, to resurrect um, labor union power in a way that doesn't fit uh, our current environment, uh, regardless of how people have traditionally felt about unions. But this bill, I, I would say, you know, there, there's two things that go on here. It, it it takes away worker rights for for those employees that, that are at, at workplaces, and it also threatens the rights of the self-employed workers who are trying to live an independent and flexible lifestyle. 
so it's it, it really isn't an overstatement when, when Akash noted this is uh, about as significant of a bill as you could find in the labor space in terms of what it could do to the American economy. One of the biggest things um, that this does is it would invalidate all right to work laws in the country. So although there was a recent Janus versus AFSCME uh, Supreme Court decision in 2018 that verified the First Amendment constitutional rights of every public employee at the federal, state and local level to make a choice personally as to whether they wanted to financially support a union or not, this policy takes away the ability of states to enact these laws for their private sector employees uh, and, and literally invalidates them and bans that practice where any place that a, a union operates, workers would, by law, uh, have to pay uh, some fees to the union unless the union itself chose to, uh, to, to uh, withdraw that requirement. Uh, and then um, on top of that, and this is, just the, this is just the start, but on top of that, independent contractors should be very weary, uh, wary of this bill because there is an ABC test that the PROACT seeks to institute uh, for the National Labor Relations Board. An ABC test is like California's AB5 law that has gotten a lot of attention. It's a very restrictive type of test that transforms a lot of, of individuals working as independent contractors today into a status where they have to be employees in order to keep working. And that, that kills the livelihood of a lot, a lot of uh, people who are trying to be those independent workers and the flexibility they need. And this would open up those uh, those individuals to being unionized. This is something where, as I say, under the National Labor Relations Board, uh, as these ABC tests are used to determine employee status, all of a sudden those workers could be organized by union. So this is another uh, big um, victory for them in terms of, of, of a special interest uh, policy. We've seen the, uh, the effect of AB5, though, in California. Uh, maybe not everyone has, but what when you talk about getting rid of the independent contractors, making them all employees, dig a little bit more into what happened in California when that law was put in place. Yeah, so there are millions of workers uh, who are affected by AB5, which went into effect uh, just a year ago. And essentially what California did with this is institute a new strict test in which if you meet any factor within this test, you cannot retain your status as an independent contractor. And this is people, whether they're yoga instructors at a studio, whether they're delivery drivers, whether they cut hair, whether they work in a medical profession, uh, there are just really workers in every sector of the economy where people want a self, self-employment opportunity and they work independently and they provide services for others, but they don't work for them as employees because they have busy family lifestyles or they like to work with multiple clients uh, and, and try to earn additional income uh, by, by doing that. So these are you know gig economy jobs, uh, freelance work, uh, you know side hustles, but obviously you know major careers for many people and and already tens of thousands of people you know lost their uh, opportunity to work immediately and millions more. Uh, have been jeopardized. There has been some activity in terms of exemptions for certain industries, and there was a Prop 22 ballot measure that created a partial independent contractor status for rideshare drivers. There are some new wage and hourly and health mandates, um, but those drivers are able to retain their independent um, flexibility in terms of when they work. Um, but this is something that now can be imposed across all of America 
uh, starting with the National Labor Relations Board, but is of interest across other agencies as well. Akash, when you look at this, is there any reason to think that what happened in California wouldn't happen in the other 49 states? Dwayne, it's actually much worse than that. Austin mentioned that the California bill came with several different exemptions that, um, you know, you've talked on your podcast about cronyism before. I mean, it's hard to think of a more obvious example. This was essentially a bunch of industries that saw how harmful AB5 could be to them, lobbied super hard, hired a bunch of lobbyists and carved themselves out of it. Um, the difference, one of the key differences between the PRO Act and California's AB5, the PRO Act does not exempt any industry from that ABC test. There's no exemptions for politically favored groups or anything like that. Every single industry is covered by that ABC test under the National Labor Relations Act and the PRO Act. And then the PRO Act actually goes one step further. Not only is the ABC test confusing and narrows independent contractor status, but if a business, even by accident, gets that wrong and treats somebody as an independent contractor who actually qualifies as an employee under the new law, that business and the business owner can be fined up to $100,000. Now, think of Austin mentioned a number of different examples of, you know, take a yoga studio or a barbershop. These are small businesses, right? They make deals with independent contractors to come and operate in their shops. They don't have, you know, white collar lawyers on, on retainer and all this stuff to sift through contracts and know the law, uh, you know, federal labor law and all of that. If the PRO Act becomes law and a small barber shop in your community that uses independent contractors continues to treat them as independent contractors, but under the PRO Act, they should be considered employees, they could be penalized up to $100,000, not only, again, from the business, but the business owner himself could be penalized just for, by accident, misinterpreting this confusing labor law. So the PRO Act would have all of the harmful effects we saw in California all across the country and then some. And in doing so, could shut down tens of thousands of small businesses. Austin, I interrupted you to get more clarification on AB5 and independent contracting. You said that there's actually more to this that you find concerning. What else is there? Well, right. And and it's great to, to, to take a moment to talk about that uh, particular aspect of this bill. But it's true. There's actually dozens of different uh, policies within this. And many of the other ones, uh, they work together to really slant organizing efforts in favor of unions. Um, one of the biggest things that uh, people would wanna be aware of is that privacy of workers would be greatly infringed by this. Employers by law would actually have to hand over private information of all of their workers, their personal email address, their home addresses, their telephone numbers. And not only is that a concern for privacy, but it has a lot of bearing in the unionizing effort because secret ballot elections that workers come to expect when they when they choose whether or not to be represented by a union, those would no longer be required. Unions can go out and get signatures from people for a showing of interest that they uh, may have interest in unions. And you can imagine situations where they have your personal address and contact information that they provide intimidation and a lot of pressure to make a signature. That signature, if, we're, if unions get over 50%, could actually be utilized to automatically uh, recognize that union and not even allow for a vote. So the, the loss of privacy has a, has a major bearing as well in the union power. And then there are other issues that allow unions to uh, intimidate people through economic means because secondary boycotts are not banned. So if you're a business that does business with uh, that, uh, that is, that is uh, under union organizing efforts, 
say you sell a product that that store carries, they could now boycott your store and protest out in front of it and try to, to economically damage you as a way to get that other business to concede or for you to help pressure that business to concede and accept a union. And then there's also uh, a reduced amount of time for businesses to even contest the unionizing effort, or I should say, even if they're not contesting it, to even educate their workers. There's a concept called ambush elections. This was something that uh, happened in the Obama era as well through a regulatory side. But right uh, in this process, essentially, in as few as eight days, you could find out that unions have an intent to uh, organize the workplace, and then a vote would be held. And as I said, maybe there isn't even a vote held anymore, but if there is a vote held, it can be within eight days. And unfortunately, there's also something called a persuader rule um, that was enacted during the Obama uh, era and, and, and uh, taken away during the Trump era. But this bill would institute a policy in which all of the communications between a business and any legal professionals or other entities that they need to be educated on this issue would be made public and it would be greatly limited in terms of what communication could occur. So it becomes a one-sided affair where the businesses cannot really talk to their own employees and yet unions have open access in many different ways. Uh, and then after a union is elected uh, and, and organized in a workplace, this bill actually interestingly will mandate binding arbitration to uh, enact a first contract if the business and union don't come to terms uh, amicably together. And, and when this happens and a third party uh, arbitrator Im impacts the, the workplace and picks this policy, workers are not even able to vote on this new policy that's going to govern their workplace. Uh, and then amazingly, the same uh, type of mediation or use of voluntary arbitration between employers and employees in a non-union workplace, that practice would be banned by the same bill in which union contract uh, arbitration is mandated. Akash, having worked on the Hill, having seen this firsthand, I'm, I, I keep going back to the idea that if, if these things were, were for the people and they were good, that it would be the people that were out there that were advocating for this, but rarely is it the people who go and ask for plumbers to be uh, licensed. It's the Plumbers Association because it's in their own best interest. I'm wondering if you can help me understand where this all came from and who, who, are, the, who are the folks who are advocating for this because it sounds like just a, a, a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, Dwayne, that's a great question. And I want to go back to two issues that Austin raised that really paint the picture of what you're saying. The primary advocates for this bill are the big labor unions that are the really powerful political machines that all have the fancy offices in Washington, D.C. They have a lot. They stand to benefit tremendously from something like this. And go back to the very first point Austin raised. If you're in a non if you're not a union member, you're a, in a right to work state and you choose not to pay union dues, you're depriving the union of revenue. And who controls that revenue ultimately? are those union leaders, those union bosses. And so when you take away right-to-work protections, more people are forced to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to the union. That provides more money, more power to the union bosses. There's two other really important points I want to raise, Dwayne. And these are particularly important for activists, staff, employees in right-to-work states, states where, where unions aren't a significant presence in the private sector. So you think a lot of those Midwest states, um, you know, the heartland, the deep south, unions are kind of a non-entity in the private sector. Folks, 
better not be thinking that they are not going to feel the impacts of this bill. This bill will have a lot more impact in states like that than it will in, you know, my home state of Rhode Island or New York or California, where unions are already an enormously powerful presence. Think of two issues that Austin raised. One, the privacy aspect. Unions have a really hard time organizing workers because they have a hard time reaching workers and, and you know, increasing the interest of workers in being unionized. You mentioned my work on the Hill. When I was in Congress, you know, working for the uh, House Education and Labor Committee last Congress, the Democrats for this bill, they brought up Richard Trumka to testify on this bill, the president of the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of labor unions in the country. This privacy aspect came up as far as having people's home phone numbers, cell phone numbers, home addresses. He literally said nearly word for word that they fully plan to go after workers at their homes and at the grocery store to get them to sign up in support of the union. Now, you can imagine what kind of pressure and intimidation a union organizer could put on somebody at, you know, at home, out in public somewhere to get them to sign that card. As Austin mentioned, that card itself, if more than half of uh, the workers in a bargaining unit sign that card, in certain circumstances, that could be enough to get the union in their workplace without a secret ballot election. The other issue Austin mentioned that has a huge impact, is going to have a huge potential impact on right-to-work states where unions are, you know, relatively non-existent, is this issue of secondary boycotts. Right now, when a union tries to organize the workplace, it's pretty much between that union and that employer, the employees in that shop that they're going after, trying to get support, trying to win a secret ballot election. To make clear what Austin's talking about by repealing that ban on so-called secondary boycotts, Let's say, Dwayne, you own a shop. Austin represents a labor union. He's trying to come in and unionize your employees. I do business with you as a vendor. I supply, you know, trinkets that you use to manufacture whatever it is that you make at your shop, Dwayne. Just because I do business with you, Austin, as the union, even though they're really going after you, they can come after me as a pressure tactic. They can boycott my business, picket outside my business, harass customers in my store just because I do business with you as a way of putting pressure on you and that union organizing drive. Given how interconnected our economy is today with suppliers, vendors, franchisees, franchisors, you name it, think of how massively that expands the scope of economic injury that a union organizing drive can have on any community where a union is trying to organize a shop. Now, when you talk about protesting that business, I want to make sure that I and everyone understands. Um, and here's an example that first came to mind when you talked about it. I was, uh, I was down at the, I was down at the town because I live in the country. So I'm in town and I'm driving into Aldi's. And as I turn the corner to go in the, to Aldi's, there's a group of people on the corner with a giant inflatable rat and they're talking about how Aldi's doesn't do something with the unions. Is that what you're talking about? That sort of thing? It's even worse because right now they're only allowed to do that to the business that the union is actually trying to go after, right? If they were trying to unionize that grocery store, they have every right to be out there picketing, you know, protesting, doing whatever they can that's protected by the First Amendment. What they don't have a right to do is go after the folks that supply the groceries to that Aldi, right? If I have a farm and I provide lettuce or whatever to that grocery store, I'm a neutral third party in that union organizing drive. I have nothing to do with the union and I just do business with you. The union's not coming after me. But if the PRO Act becomes law, they can come after me and every other business 
that supplies your grocery store just because we do business with you to try to put pressure on us to put pressure on you, which, again, expands the scope of economic injury that unions can impose with strikes, boycotts, pickets to countless neutral third parties across our economy. I saw something earlier, Austin, and it made me think about what you said earlier. There was a, a tweet that I saw that that basically said my father, in order to keep the unions out of his shop, paid his employees more and treated them better so they had no reason to go to the unions. But what I'm hearing is with this with this pro act, just possibly signing something that says you're interested to get people off your lawn that could end up unionizing a workplace. That's right. Uh, so although some uh, some situations after the project were enacted might lead to uh, an actual election, if the unions are able to get more than 50 percent signatures, then that can be utilized to form the union instead. Uh, and especially with all the restrictions that there are for a business uh, in communicating with workers and all the threats that this poses because of the, the gained union power through this businesses are going to be more liable to go along with that process uh, and even facilitate it uh, just for, as a survival tactic uh, facing all the, the legal consequences um, in, in that situation. So workers, um, you know, are, are, as we say, many people will speak differently about something in public than, than what their conscience uh, uh, would reveal in private. And that's certainly the case with unions. Unions traditionally have had to get far more public support than than 50 percent to feel like they had a good chance of gaining half of the workers in a secret ballot election. And that holds true, uh, you know, with with elections that we have uh, for elected representatives, people may feel differently uh, than than they than they show in public. Uh, and that, that becomes even more the case in the highly um, um, intimidating situations that they might be around unions uh, as they organize. I was going to say, though, Akash did bring up something else. Uh, he mentioned um, franchises. Um, so there, there was one other factor um, that's worth bringing up here. It ties a bit to the independent contracting issue uh, and then overall with the unionizing issue. But there would be a new joint employer standard uh, within this that allows essentially unions to try to organize a much uh, wider swath of society and to uh, lob unfair labor practices against businesses. But if you think about the franchise model, where a, a local business, whether it's a McDonald's or some other type of, uh, of local business, those are opened by independent entrepreneurs that use branding of a, of a larger franchise. But the argument uh, for, for supporters of ProAct is that they should be able to use the corporate level or the larger level, or if there's a, or there's a subcontractor working for a contractor, they can use the larger entity and say that you are imposing control over, over workers when that isn't the case, and that would allow them to try to unionize, you know, millions of employees at once ra rather than one store at a time. So there's another effort in that regard uh, to also undermine workers um, who can be organized by people voting uh, at, at different workplaces they've never even interacted with, um, even if even if the process were, were moving forward in a fair manner. Akash, this seems Akash, like this a seems really right. awful, awful law, and I'm curious how are how are proponents of this law selling it? What are they What are they saying? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked, Dwayne. So you'll hear this a lot from 
uh, big labor, union bosses, they say that workers need laws like the PRO Act. Unions need more coercive power, essentially, is what they're arguing for, so that workers can have a fair shake, so they can earn higher wages, better benefits, you name it. Um, the data simply bears out that that's not true. I'll give you a couple statistics, Dwayne, that really paint this picture. We've, we talked about how the union rate has fallen enormously over the past couple of decades. In 1983, the union rate was above 20 percent. Today, the union rate is well below 10 percent. So it's fallen by more than half. The average American family, so median household income which is a good measure of the middle class, the average American household earns more than $1,000 more today than it did in 1975. Say that again. While the union rate has been cut in half, more than cut in half, the median American family makes $1,000 more per month. So another way to think about that is not only are America, more Americans are getting wealthier. A really powerful statistic that I love Inflation adjusted, the portion of American households that make at least $100,000, again, inflation adjusted, today's dollars, more than, can you hear me, Dwayne? No, we lost you there. Can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, let me back up that point. What I was saying is the portion of American households, inflation adjusted, that makes more than $100,000 per year, has more than tripled over the last five decades. Austin, but we, we are coming up on the end. It, it sounds like what, what Akash was trying to get across is despite the fact that union membership has dropped by more than half, American wages have risen pretty much across the board and that, that, that uh, workers today are making more than they did when unions were high. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. And in fact, if you do a direct comparison of right-to-work states versus non-right-to-work states, the, when you account for cost of living uh, adjustments, wages are actually higher. There's a higher standard of living in the right-to-work states. There has been significantly more job growth in those states and something that people uh, care significantly about. The tax rate uh, is lower in those states. Uh, they, there's a, a, na a national tax day is essentially that uh, some organizations will track where, you know, what is how many days per year do you have to work before the average person has paid their taxes to their federal, state, and local governments. And that uh, is a double-digit lower number in, in people who live in right-to-work states. So when people have choice uh, and unions uh, uh, have to earn uh, voluntary membership, that actually, you know, of course, can improve unions as well in, in terms of accountability. But it clearly shows that more people uh, in those states um, elect to go without a union uh, and and we see benefits um, in those states uh, by having a more open and dynamic economy in, in which um, worker terms aren't dictated just by unions, but rather by workers and the things that they're looking for uh, on a more individual basis. I got the feeling that we've talked a lot and we haven't touched the, you know, we barely scratched the surface. So where can someone go to learn more about the PRO Act and maybe take action? Sure. Well, Americans for Prosperity has um, created a good bit of content on this. Um, you could go to votenopro.com uh, for an opportunity as an individual to actually share your opposition to this bill. Uh, and then you'd be able to find additional content um, through Americans for Prosperity of our social media and our, um, our, our regular website, as well as that votenopro.com. Thanks again to Akash and Austin. 
If you want to know more about the PRO Act, please check out our show notes for links to articles you can share. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on whatever service you're listening to us on right now. And if you want to go that extra mile, please tell a friend about the podcast. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.